3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present and we acknowledge their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. It is just me in the studio this morning, Max. Um, It's five past seven at the morning on the 28th of November. And what do I have on the show for you today? Well, we'll be chatting with Kate Kelly um, with some news headlines in just a moment. And then for the rest of the show, I think it's actually going to be really great. We're going to talk with um, Dr. Adrian Faruga at 7.30 about a really amazing new website, overdoselifesavers.com, um, which uh, recounts and sort of captures people's experiences with opioid overdose and how people manage overdose, um, particularly the use of take-home naloxone as well. So we'll be talking about um, you know stig- challenging stigma around overdose and how to um, skill up communities uh, supporting you know, supporting people that we know um, around this stuff at 7.30. And a bit before that, we'll be playing some of those those clips, those real-life stories as well. At quarter to eight later on, we'll be talking with um, May, who is um, going to speak with us about government repression in the Philippines and what is being done to resist both um, over in the Philippines and also here in Australia in terms of solidarity efforts as well. So this is a bit like a sort of a two-part um a two-part, maybe even three-part series, we'll see, because we spoke with Jane Brock last week um, about the repression and arrests of folks in trade unions in the Philippines. And so this week we're going to continue that conversation about the targeting of human rights advocates um, and solidarity efforts as well. And then at 8 o'clock we're going to be talking with Amal Leotolu, um, a really amazing Fafafine Samoan trans activist um, and generally incredible human being um, who'll be coming to the studio to talk about a whole range of things. I will leave you waiting to find out more about what we'll be talking about with Amal. Um, but first up, we might jump to a few announcements and when we get back, we'll be doing news headlines with Kate Kelly. This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Tune in to Power from the Margins. 3CR's broadcast for International Day of People with Disability on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we'll feature BIPOC perspectives, live music, artists and discussions. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2019. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR. Funded by the City of Yarra. 
Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate, and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counseling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call triple zero. A 3CR supporter. Guatemala, I'm Black Betty and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3pm. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore Black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. Swing down to the Abbotsford Convent for a fundraiser in the newly opened space, The Laundry. Support the Boat in an exciting night featuring music from Nina Rose, Melbourne Scottish Fiddle Club, Iyaki Vallejo, Ernie Gruner, Yuvalashka, Pascal Latra, the Ice Halos and a silent auction with donations from local supporting businesses. Food and drinks available. The Boat's 40th birthday fundraiser, 7.30pm Saturday, 30th of November at the Laundry Abbotsford Convent. For details and tickets, visit the Boat's website, boite.com.au. The Boat, a proud 3CR supporter. Three CR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more at 3CR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Just me on ila 3CR Community Radio araja al ishtrakal an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanali 3CR ay kertu kondir kondir kal. Inre inayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Netsuketsek Radio i gairanin for a time gudam elbumi hai kaotin. Hima artsan akrevetsek iper 3CR antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Tune in to Power from the Margins, 3CR's broadcast for International Day of People with Disability on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we'll feature BIPOC perspectives, live music, artists and discussions. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2019. 
You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55 a.m. It is 12 past 7 at the moment um, here in the studio with just me, Max, but we're joined on the line by the wonderful Kate Kelly with news headlines. Good morning, Kate. Morning, Max. How are you going? Uh, good, good. <laughs> How are you? you? Um, so first up this morning we have that um, Victoria's taken its first step towards decriminalising sex work after State Crossbench MP Fiona Patton said she would launch an inquiry into the laws around the industry and state. So this review is in line with the Victorian Labor Party policy which supports the full decriminalisation of sex work and will cover commercial brothels, escort agencies, massage parlours and street-based work. Decriminalisation of sex work maximises workers' legal protections and the ability to exercise other key rights, such as access to health care. So if the review recommends that sex work be decriminalised in the state, Labor has promised to introduce a bill to Parliament. The announcement comes off the back of the Northern Territory decriminalising sex work on Tuesday night, with the Parliament voting 16 to 5 to repeal the state's old laws. The Scarlet Alliance, which is the peak body representing Australian sex workers, has said the vote meant that the Northern Territory became just the third jurisdiction in the world to fully decriminalise sex work. And the Royal Commission into Victoria's Mental Health System is set to release its interim report today. And it's been revealed that the government is looking to overhaul the way prisoners with mental illnesses and cognitive impairments are treated. So the state government has admitted its concern those with mental illness and cognitive impairments are overrepresented and suffer more in jail, which leads to a higher rate of reoffence. The Royal Commission has been asked to recommend changes to improve mental health outcomes for at-risk groups, including people in forensic mental health and justice systems. And the Victorian state government has vowed to adopt absolutely every recommendation the Royal Commission makes. So the report will be handed down at 10am. And lastly, more than 6,500 same-sex couples wed in Australia in 2018, which was the first full calendar year that same-sex couples could legally marry in Australia. So out of the 119,000 couples who tied the knot in the 12-month period, same-sex marriage accounted for 5.5% of those getting hitched according to this data released from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Alex Greenwich, an independent MP for Sydney and the Australian Marriage Equality Co-Chair, said the statistics were a reminder that the sky didn't fall in after same-sex marriage was legalised. Perhaps unsurprisingly, 98.9% of the marriages were administered by civil celebrants, and of the only 79 couples who were married by a religious celebrant, the Uniting Church accounted for 23. Uh, and perhaps interesting, the information also showed that overall there were almost 50,000 divorces in Australia in 2018. And that is all for news headlines this Thursday, Max. Amazing. Thank you. That is incredible news about um, the Northern Territory decriminalising sex work. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Isn't it's it? like... A, it's a nation first, a world first. It means so many workers will have proper, um, have better access to lots of things that are really important for their livelihoods. Mm. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's so exciting. Um, mm, and yeah. also to hear that, you know, Victoria is hopefully slowly following suit. That's also, yeah, just so excellent. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very cool. 
Well, we're really happy to have you back um, after you know a bit of a break. We've missed you with your news headlines. I tried to give it a shot, didn't do half as good job. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, welcome back on board, Kate. <laughs> it's great to be back. Thank you. All right. Well, you have a wonderful Thursday, and we'll speak to you next week. All right. Have a great show. Bye. Bye. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. And up next, um, I'm going to play a track for you. This is a new release from Alice Skye called I Feel Better But I Don't Feel Good.
I'm here at the School Kids Strike for Climate Action with some of the people who are on strike today. Can you tell us your names and how old you are? Uh, so my name's Ivy and I'm 12 years old. My name is Marta and I'm 8 years old. My name's Layla and I'm 11 years old. Inequality is at a 70 year high. Our jobs are going offshore, our jobs are being casualised. 40% of us are trapped in insecure work. The richest 1% have more than the 70% of us at the bottom. And workers will stand up and fight. You've never seen a fight before until you back the Australian workers into a corner and tell them they've got no rights. Those workers will fight. 3CR, union issues and workers' struggles. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 20 past 7 and just before we heard the new track, I Don't Feel Better But I Don't Feel... I Feel Better But I Don't Feel Good by Alice Skye. So, public discussion of overdose rarely looks further than the statistics, but it's important to recognise that behind each death from overdose was a human life that had its own story and remains connected to the lives and stories of others. A new website... OverdoseLifesavers.com sheds light on the stories of people affected by overdose and explores the different ways that people who consume drugs manage overdose, including through the use of take-home naloxone. In just under 10 minutes at 7.30, we'll be chatting with Adrian Faruga, one of the project staff behind the website. But first, we're going to hear some of the real-life stories um, of people that are documented on the website. So, first up... Uh, we have the story of Mark, who's in his early 40s, lives in Victoria and consumes non-prescribed opioids. So this story describes in detail Mark helping his friend who had overdosed at a party. Note that there is strong language in this segment. I can remember having... is my best friend at the time. is many years ago. And I had a feeling that he, he picked up a heroin habit. We were drinking the similar levels. We both... Generally weren't huge drinkers, and so we sort of, and we'd always drink, be at a place, be happy enough, and you know, we wouldn't drink to oblivion. And then all of a sudden, when we got back to this person's house, we were like finishing off uh, a bit of a house party and gone back to this uh, person's flat. Just suddenly, I just saw him keeled over in sort of the corner of the lounge room. I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I just sort of looked at him and was shit. And I just pulled him into the stairwell. Because he, he said, just get me away from these people. I don't want anyone to see me. And I just pulled up his sleeve and it was like, ah, OK. I just stayed with him all night. Just kept trying to talk to him. Because I, I, I was fairly young then. I was, I was probably only 24. And I call that young in my drug-taking days. So I didn't exactly know what to do. And there certainly wasn't any uh, phones with internet back then. And so I just kept on trying to, you know, if suddenly I thought he was sleeping too much, just nudging, he's nodding off and just sort of like had his head in his hands and stuff like that. I considered calling the ambulance and I remember at one point he said, don't, because if my dad finds out, he'll kill me. And his dad was a cop. So I was like, oh, fuck, all right. Because, you know, you don't know how much of the systems were all linked or whatever, it doesn't matter, but... Um, yeah, so I just sort of stayed. That, that was my most 
personal experience. Next, Bobby, um, female in her mid-30s, living in New South Wales, consuming non-prescribed opioids, argues that take-home naloxone is something that anybody who injects should use. I think that as much knowledge about Narcan that there is as possible, the better that you guys can help any addicts that, that may need to have it. So anything that can help, you know, make drug use a bit safer for people, I think is always a good thing. Like anybody who's using should do it, yeah. As soon as you start injecting, I think that you should do it. It should be open to you to be able to do For many people who consume opioids, take-home naloxone is a relatively easy way of saving lives. The potential to save lives appears in Dylan's description of storing take-home naloxone at his home, where he also talks about letting other people he know he has it. So usually I would keep my naloxone on me, but because I've just come from a series of managerial meetings this morning, I haven't been out in the community, so my bag's full of paperwork. I took my naloxone kit out to fit more paperwork in. When I'm at home, it sits in a drawer underneath my coffee table. Anyone that comes to my house that I use opiate substances with, one of the first things I do is point out, I have naloxone, this is where it's located. If you need to use it on me, if I need to use it on you, it's within arm's reach. Life-saving medicine is just there. Recently, Karen, uh, female in her early 30s in Victoria, was consuming heroin with a group of friends. Her friend Patricia had also consumed other drugs, pills, and while Karen was concerned about this, she remembers that she didn't feel able to intervene. Her concerns turned out to be justified when Patricia began experiencing an overdose. Karen was quick to respond and began preparing some naloxone that was in her husband's bag. Note strong language in this segment. So we all went to our normal spot and had it. And then next thing you know, I've finished getting myself. I've turned around and she's like, sway. I'm like, you all right? And she's like, yeah, I'm all right. And then the next thing you know, her head's just hit the cement slab. Just going dunk instantly. And I go, oh, shit. So everyone else sort of moved back because they sort of, I suppose it's because I'm a pretty strong-minded person, but everyone moved back. One one was turning on the side. I was going in my bag because I had my husband's bag, so I was getting that out. And this time my mates are there trying to get, like, smack her in the head, trying to wake her up because she was just not responding. Lenny, um, in his early 40s in Victoria, speaks about feeling very anxious and freaking out when he had to administer naloxone. Luckily, he was assisted by others who were able to explain by the recipient to the recipient what had happened. From Lenny's perspective, this communication within the group helped make this otherwise very stressful event relatively calm. That one was probably the most calmest person I've ever woken up. Like, they knew where they were once they saw me head. And so, like, what happened? It was like freaking out. So, like, what happened? What happened? But it was all easy. Like, it was smooth. Like, there was no coppers. There was no ambulance or anything like that. I just had two other people behind me. And they're just telling him what happened, like exactly what, how he dropped. And then he sort of like looked over to me and said, thanks. And I sort of like, yeah, well, hopefully you would have done the same thing for me. And he goes, yeah, he didn't know how to respond sort of. So just then we've been hearing some um, some real-life stories that are captured on the OverdoseLifesavers.com website, a new website that we're now going to be chatting with Dr Adrian Fruger about, who's a research fellow at the Australian Centre in Sex, Health and the Society at La Trobe University. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Max. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, so uh, we- thanks for having me. 
we've just been hearing some of the really, you know, the really powerful testimonies that are documented on this new website. To start with, though, can we maybe take a few steps back and could you just explain for us what actually is overdose, um, particularly opioid overdose, given that we know there are so many myths and stereotypes attached to overdose in generally? Could you just unpack um, some of these for us and what the reality actually is? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, opioid overdose at its most simple is just the body's response to consuming too much of an opioid drug. So it can re- sort of occur as a result of consuming too many or a dangerous combination of opioids and other drugs. And so opioids, um, a lot, usually what comes to mind for people are illicit drugs such as heroin, but it also includes um, uh, illicit uh, pharmaceutical drugs such as Oxycontin or other painkillers. I mean, Panadine Fort has codeine in it, which is an opioid. And so what um, opioid overdose, what, what occurs to the body is that the, it reduces respiratory function. So someone who's experienced an overdose uh, stops breathing or they start breathing in a, a really shallow amount. And so this, involves, so this results in them not taking into enough oxygen and eventually causes vital, oxygen, uh, vital organs to stop working. And so it's this lack of oxygen that's actually the primary cause of death from overdose. But it's a really important thing to remember because because of the way it works, it's actually usually quite a while, many minutes or even hours can um, elapse um, when, uh, before a person actually uh, dies. So this means that there's actually a lot of time uh, to intervene in an overdose and avert a tragedy like this. And in terms of intervention, um, in a lot of those stories that we heard before, we heard people describing their experiences using take-home naloxone. What actually is take-home naloxone? Yeah, so naloxone is what's called an opioid antagonist. And so what it does is it kind of restores respiratory function to someone um, experiencing an overdose. So um, if someone notices that someone's experiencing an overdose, they can give them naloxone either through an injection or through the nose, what's called intranasally, and essentially it restores breathing. And so the term take-home naloxone is basically just to... Uh, a catch-all for a series of initiatives that have tried to make naloxone available to non-medically trained people. So naloxone's been around for a very long time. Paramedics have been using it for years. It's used in hospitals and and, um, medical settings. Uh, And in recent years, there's been calls to have uh, non-medically trained people use it, such as people who consume opioids um, recreationally. And that's basically what take-home naloxone is. So being able to buy it at the pharmacy, Uh, being able to get it from um, an alcohol and other drug centre. Yeah, that's basically what it is. Mm. It's so so important and so amazing that it is now more accessible. But there do remain some, um, you know, some barriers and obstacles to to getting and using um, take-home naloxone. What are some of those barriers? Yeah, so there's still many really important barriers. It's a really important issue. So... um, Take-home naloxone initiatives have been around in varying sizes uh, in Australia since 2012. The first was in the ACT, and uh, there's always been great results from these programs, uh, genuinely life-saving um, outcomes. Um, so this is part of why you know addressing these barriers remains really important issues. There's some simple things like just the lack of awareness about the issue among people who consume drugs, as well as around among health professionals, and this depends, you know, according to how long the initiative's been running in a particular city or state. Um, there's also still issues around um, price. So we recently found, uh, recently it was announced that 
um, what's called Nixoid, which is an intranasal naloxone product, um, has gone on the PBS listing, so that'll reduce its cost, which is great. Um, but it can still be expensive to access um, other forms of naloxone without a prescription. Um, other barriers are just limited access options. So you should be able to get it in any community pharmacy, theoretically, but a lot some pharmacists don't know about it yet or don't um, just don't stock it for whatever reason. But I think, you know, uh, most importantly, and our research and lots of research always really emphasises this, is that stigma and discrimination against people who consume opioids and people who consume drugs more generally it remains a really significant barrier. And so this kind of not only limits the ability just to ask for it um, when you go to a pharmacy or a GP, but it also creates this cultural and political context in which people who consume opioids aren't... Um, their health concerns aren't positioned as of, of central importance in some way as other members of the community are. And this dynamic sort of affects interpersonal interactions in uh, healthcare settings and that kind of thing. Um, but it also affects um, whether healthcare settings see this as a pressing issue. Um, do they do they see take-home naloxone as something they uh, need to really get on, on top of or is it something that's on the back burner? And uh, do we have you know, big social media campaigns supporting it or is it something that we just assume will, you know, eventually take time and eventually um, flow on into the community. And so I think it's really this kind of broader um, cultural issue, such as stigma, is, is one that is a sort of significant barrier that we're trying to overcome at the moment. Mm, absolutely. Um, and that that stigma, you know, extends to sort of all corners of society, but from both, you know, community members to like health professionals, pharmacists, um, and then also, you know, say, for example, police um, officers as well. Because there was, there was one story that we heard before where a person was talking about their dad being a police officer. And I noticed on the website, there's a whole section around encounters with police as well. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about, uh, yeah, I guess like, um, police responses to, you know, people who are experiencing overdose and or using or carrying take-home naloxone? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, that really goes um, to the, uh, really, like, to the heart of of the issue, which is uh, the criminalisation of people who consume drugs. Mm. So, you know, any any response to overdose, uh, naloxone, and, and there's other responses that have been developed over the years are limited in their effectiveness because they're in a context in which people are criminalised for these mm-hmm. practices. So um, some of the people that I spoke to had, did, as you mentioned, did have interactions with police which um, limited their ability to, to then uh, carry naloxone in the future. For example, some may be uh, questioned by police in the street and the police aren't aware of what naloxone is and then they give them a hard time and then they think, well, next time I'm walking around, I don't mm-hmm. want to have this on me because it can result in uh, me having to deal with the police in this way. And, of course, that limits... Uh, their ability to help a friend or someone um, when they're walking around because they have to leave it at home or whatever. And so um, thinking about kind of the pr- prohibition and, and, the, and the sort of its, its follow-on effects, in a lot of ways it's, it's, it's producing the context in which overdoses uh, occur. And, and so at present we're kind of implicating, we're implicated in the creation of the problem that we're trying to solve. So we're, you know, hoping that people who consume drugs will, and other members of the community will carry this um, this extremely powerful tool, and it, it is great. Naloxone is great, but um, it's within a context of, um, of criminalisation and that kind of thing, which makes overdoses much more likely. And so it's a kind of um, it's a very sort of complex 
uh, it presents a very complex picture and the police are a really um, important part of that. Mm. Yeah, because that was going to be my next question around, you know, in many ways naloxone almost, not that it seems too good to be true, but it is, it's an incredible tool. Like as you say, it, you know, it, it literally saves lives, but it's not... Um, it's not a single solution in and of itself, you know, that, that point that you made before about that it operates within a context and we're not mm. going to be able to change that context just through broader access to naloxone. You know, there are so many other moving parts um, and mm. social and community attitudes that need to change as well. Could you maybe just speak a little bit more about, about that importance of, yeah, situating this conversation about um, take-home naloxone within a broader context of decriminalising drug use more generally? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, one of the things, um, you know, bearing in mind that, like, like you've just said, and I've, I've just said as well, that not, you know, I would never want to, I wouldn't want to take away from the importance of naloxone. It's an mm. extremely powerful tool and a really great initiative, and a lot of people feel really empowered and they really um, appreciate having it, and, and it is, it is great. But it, it's, it should, it needs to be part of a broader set of um, reforms, uh, legal reforms, and regulatory reforms that make overdoses less likely to begin with. Mm. So um, they can be um, things like processes of decriminalisation, but also, like you said, like um, community attitudes. So in, in the past, we've, we've done some analysis of um, media coverage of uh, opioid, uh, of overdose death. And one of, our, uh, one of the th- sort of things that we realised when we were doing this analysis was that often overdose deaths were positioned within mainstream media as kind of an inevitable effect of using drugs or an inevitable kind of endpoint for someone who uses drugs, which is fundamentally not the case. When, when, that's, when we present the narrative like that, it sort of backgrounds all of these, um, all of these issues like the la- lack of health services, um, stigma and discrimination, criminalisation and these things which are all implicated in the making of overdose and, and the producing of these things and the necessity for something like... Um, Take home naloxone uh, to, to you know the necessity for it at all. Um, one, I think, one thing about um, or one way of trying to change these attitudes is to sort of is to show that people who consume opioids are already doing a lot of amazing work in the community, um, literally life life saving work, and um, and without their local knowledge, understandings, and their expertise. Um, uh, with you know, there's a lot of people who wouldn't be around mm. around today, and so you know, take home naloxone is really like it really relies on this kind of local expertise, people who consume drugs. Mm. Yeah, I really love that point. I think it's so valuable to make that you know, it's not as though even though the increased um, access to take home naloxone again, to reiterate, is fantastic. It's not as though mm. that, you know, that policy shift, which suddenly, you know, meant that it's now more accessible at local pharmacies, um, mm. that that was, you know, that that came out of nowhere, that actually, you know, people in their communities um, have been doing, you know, this work, supporting each other, saving lives for so many years and keeping each yeah. other safe in so many incredible ways um, and, you know, working out safer practices and all these sorts of things. And, you know, take-home naloxone is an incredible thing to add to that toolkit, but it's not as though, you know, medical professionals and researchers have somehow swooped in and saved the day. That that, that work is really coming from the ground up, isn't it? Yeah. So, all, all, I mean, Australia has this quite... Um powerful history of, of harm reduction work and mm-hmm. harm reduction activism from um, drug, uh, you know, drug consumer uh, organisations. 
and this is you know this is building on that and coming from from mm-hmm. that from that history. So yes, it's, um, and you know this is part of that history and that work that's been done is part of um, and you know the policy changes that that are related to the, to those to those things are part of why Australia is in, in is in although we still have a lot of issues and overdose deaths are on the rise and that's a really concerning thing, um, but we're in a better position to some other. Uh, some other con- uh, other contexts r- around the world, um, but on that I think is a really important point that um, it, you know we can't we can't expect um, people who consume drugs to shoulder all of the burdens created by legal and regulatory arrangements. Mm. So um, they're doing such great work and have been doing for such a long time. Um, but it, 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 it would be shirking responsibility from all sorts of other institutions and people to just assume that they have to go out and, and fix, the, fix the failures of, of public health, fix the failures of, of, of prohibition and that kind of thing. So um, we need to always kind of keep that in mind, that th- these things are happening at the same time. Absolutely. And on that note, let's talk a little bit about this new website. Um, how did this how did this website overdoselifesavers.com come about and what can listeners expect to find if they go online and have a look at it yeah so what um it builds on a previous project that we did so we did a uh, the, the team did a previous uh, website as well called livesofsubstance.org and that was about um a destigmatizing website about presenting uh people's experiences of um uh, habitual or dependent or what also called addictive addiction uh, drug consumption within the context of their whole life to show that people who use drugs uh, live whole and complex and meaningful lives just like um, other members of the community. And so, building on that, we wanted and this and the issue of increasing overdose death, we wanted to focus this new site on um, overdose and the lockdown in particular. So, um, what people will find if if they visit it is it's mainly made up of two sections. So there's Sort of detailed personal stories, and then there's um, topics organised thematically. And so, in the personal stories, are kind of the um, participants. So we interviewed people about these experiences, and they would recount long, fairly long narratives of, of experiences of overdose, experiences of, of giving naloxone to their friends, or experiences of, of having it given to them. And and we present those kind of long narratives to show the to, to situate them carefully within. Um, the social context that people are living, and then next, 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 next to it, yeah, these thematic topics. So there's things like experiences giving naloxone, um, understandings of overdose, as you mentioned, encounters with police. Uh, another topic which is um, uh, really focused on social relationships. So that's about family and friends. And so when people um, go to the website, they can go through these different topics or go through the stories, and they can hear from our participants. Uh, in their own words, talking about um, these experiences. So there's, um, as you played before, there's original audio recordings from people's interviews where you can hear their actual voice. And then there's uh, reenactments um, where an actor has, um, is, is, has, has, has read parts of the um, transcript of the interview and they're reenacted, as well as just texts where people can read and, uh, yeah, and, and, and explore the content that way. And so it's from a it's sort of from a, a, a qualitative research project where we interviewed um, 40, 44 people who consume opioids, and we also interviewed health professionals. And there, some of the health professionals' reflections on the lockdown appear on uh, one section of the site as well. But most of the content is from um, is from the people who consume opioids themselves. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's such a fantastic website. I really do encourage listeners to jump online and check it out, particularly because I, you know, when you talk about that this came out of qualitative research, you know, I could imagine that just turning into some fusty report that sits on a shelf and, you know, only other researchers read, whereas this website is actually so accessible um, in the diversity of sort of media and formats that it has. And there's just so much valuable information on there. Um, So, yeah, really strongly encourage people to get online, check it out at overdoselifesavers.com. And just lastly, Adrian, if people want to, you know, find out more about take-home naloxone, they want to skill up, they want to, you know, learn more, maybe, um, you know, get some themselves can you just give us an idea of like what are some of the things that people can do um, aside from going on overdoselifesavers.com in order to skill up around this yeah so they can um there's a there's a few options they can speak to their local uh drug consumer advocacy organization so for example um we're very lucky in victoria to have harm reduction victoria which are uh, a great organization and they can get into them they can go to their website or um, give them a call and they'll definitely be able to point them in the right direction. If they're interested potentially in... Oh, yeah, and in New South Wales, there's a, um, a similar organisation uh, called NUA. Um, if they're interested in potentially um, upskilling um, perhaps their workplace, um, they can also speak to an organisation like the Pennington Institute who will be able to give them advice on potentially having a trainer come in and... and um, train uh, everyone at their workplace on how to respond to an overdose, which um, we've done that ourselves in our, uh, in our research centre. Um, also, um, most simply, naloxone is what's called a Schedule 3 medicine, so that means that it can be accessed over the counter in a pharmacy. Um, you just have to speak to the pharmacist so they can ask their local pharmacy if they have it in stock and uh, they can um, uh, encourage them to um, bring it in stock if they don't. Um, those, those are all things uh, people can do. There's also there is lots of uh, resources online, um, uh, and yeah, and yeah, and overdoselifesavers.org does have one um, page as well of um, uh, resources and information. So just play a, a list of, of places people can go to um, to see if they want to find out more about this. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adrian, for joining us this morning. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me. Um, We've been speaking with Adrian Faruga, Research Fellow at the Australian Centre in Sex, Health and Society, about the new website, overdoselifesavers.com, and the use of take-home naloxone. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, and up next we're going to listen to Before Daylight by the Marindas. We made a home where we can walk together, where love is free to be alive.
This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, it's 8 to 8, and that track we heard just then was a recently released uh, track by the Marindas called Before Daylight. And now up next, we're going to be talking with May Kotsakis about what's going on in the Philippines, following on from our chat with Jane Brock last week about um, arrests and attacks against folks in trade unions and other progressive civil society organisations and human rights advocates. We're going to be following on and doing a part two sort of that conversation with May this week. May is the chairperson of PASA, the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, which is a cause-oriented organisation of Filipinos and non-Filipinos. Good morning, May. Hi, good morning, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Thursday Breakfast. Yeah, this is a very beautiful day, Thursday morning. (laughs) (laughs) So, May, to begin with, um, particularly given actually just before um, that song that we played, we were talking with... um, someone about a new website here in Australia called overdoselifesavers.com, which is um, a, a website about about drug use, about opioid drug use and about, you know, saving lives through take-home naloxone. I was wondering if we could totally shift gear um, but talk about often in the media here in Australia when we hear about the Philippines, we hear about the so-called war on drugs. So I was wondering, could you give us a bit of an overview about what does this actually mean, particularly behind this govern- government rhetoric what does the so-called war on drugs actually mean in terms of impacts on people's everyday lives? Actually, uh, many people now don't call it war on drugs because um, they call it war on the poor. Uh, because after three years of the Duterte, you know, war on drugs, so-called war on drugs, the war, the flow of war is not stopped. I mean, the flow of drugs is not stopped. And none of the drug lords are actually incarcerated or, you know, or um, accused. So most of those that are affected, the victims, the more than 27,000 um, victims are poor. They are the underprivileged students, youth. So this is not a war on drugs. It's a war on the poor, poor Filipinos. Mm, absolutely. That's so important to, um, yeah, to insist on and know about how, I guess, 
where what what happens from here in the sense of you you mentioned that you know obviously this has been ongoing for quite some time nothing has changed um what is happening you know on the ground in the philippines in terms of how are people fighting back against this war on the poor Yes, uh, the Duterte government is using different forms of uh, violence and attacking the people. Not only these who are so-called war on drugs, also is against all, even civil society organizations, mass organizations, institutions, including churches, who are critical to the government's anti-people policies. So... Um, they are using all kinds of forms of violence, including planting evidence. You know, mm. I think uh, Jane must have already discussed this. When mm. they raid offices and houses, they plant evidence so they can accuse whoever they want to arrest as an uh, enemy of the state. So mm. anyone who is anti-government policies is called terrorist or enemy of the state. And this has been going on, all the maligning, the accusation has been going on. And the president even sent uh, delegates or representatives and even using the uh, Philippine ambassador to other countries to campaign against community organizations and civil society organizations. Mm. So, of course, uh, especially this war on the poor, of course, uh, many poor people disadvantaged, they are frightened as well. They are they are affected, especially uh, parents won't allow their children to go out at night. So um, many Filipinos are affected. But as I say this, the activists, the human rights advocates, they are not deterred. They know that this is a campaign to terrorize and to, uh, you know, to frighten the people. But they are not affected. They are more and more determined to expose the human rights violation of this government and also all the anti-people policies. Mm. Are human rights advocates and activists being targeted in in other ways? Aside, you know, as you said, we talked with Jane last week about these recent arrests of um, people in trade unions. But beyond that, are there other ways in which activists are being targeted by the government? Oh, yes. Um, because they are, you know, um, the government use like, if they are planning or they want to stop to silence someone or an organization, they would make an announcement that this organization or this someone is a um, member of the New People's Army, which is the Revolutionary Army, or they are terrorists. And even on the walls, they'll post, you know, the, those announcements on the walls. And um, that is the start. When they start that, then they are going to start harassing the person or the organization to, well, of course, to frighten them. And then later on, they are going to start the, the raids, the arrest, you know. So it, it is like a, a systematic way of attacking the activists. They... And they also they also um, use different uh, you know different military. Uh, they, they have formed different for, uh, kinds of um, agencies. They um, they use the police, the armed forces of the Philippines, and other forms of agencies to mm -hmm. attack and to silence you know any any uh, position or any critic. 
Just last, I, I tell you uh, one, just recently, mm-hmm. the president has um, has assigned the vice president, Lenny Robredo, as a co-chairperson of this, what they call ICAD, or Interagency Committee on Anti-Illegal Drugs. So anyway, Rodrigo start, uh, Robredo started to ask questions and ask for documents about this uh, anti-drug you know, campaign. Then when he, when she was insistent on asking for documentation, she was terminated. She was stopped by President Duterte. So there is something that they want to hide. They don't like the, the actual truth to be exposed. Because I think the reason why Robredo was assigned to this position is to make her a scapegoat. Because of many, there are already many warnings, many advice, and many concerns from our, around the world regarding this, uh, the 30s war on drugs. So they, you know, the president wants to look for a sca- scapegoat. And Lenny Robredo, his vice president, is a soft target. So <laughs> he assigned her to the position. But then he sucked her. Right, okay. Yeah, because, you know, there is some, I guess, coverage in the international media, isn't there, of the, you know, the extreme number of extrajudicial killings that have happened under under Duterte, Duterte's um, regime. But I guess what you're sort of saying is, you know, there's, yeah, there's there's so much more happening beyond that that I guess doesn't even reach the international media. Yes, of course there are. And, um, and just like other countries, you know, Max, uh, it's not only in the Philippines, in even in the U.S., even here in Australia, isn't it? They they call activists terrorists. Mm. They use this terrorism law to silence any any opposing or any critic. So, and and many of those news that is happening, especially in third world countries like the Philippines, it's not actually being picked up by the mm. mainstream media. So thanks to this, you know, to the <laughs> to the progress of um, online and these uh, social media, that uh, news also is still is still come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because as you say, it is such a common tactic um, across governments all around the world to you know label and vilify activists as terrorists and to use that as a way to justify you know tightening laws and you know criminalizing and locking people up and on that note I want to continue talking a little bit more about resistance you know you're part of the um you're the co-chairperson of the Philippines Australia Solidarity Association so what what is currently being done in terms of you know resistance efforts and solidarity both in the Philippines, but also here in so-called Australia as well. Yeah, that's good, Max. You know that Australia is uh, giving military aid to the Philippines. And actually, last November 18, the Philippine Secretary of Defense, Lorenzana, and the Australian Defense Minister, Linda Reynolds, they jointly announced that Australia will increase its military aid to the Philippines through the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Program. Many Australians believe that Australia should not support a fascist government or a brutal military, you know, like the Philippine military. So one of our campaigns is to um, to call on different Australian groups or Australians 
to call the attention of the Australian government, maybe write a letter, protest to them, and ask them to stop military aid to the Philippines. Because we believe, you know, many of our supporters and Australians believe that if you're supporting a very brutal uh, military and who is who has been, you know, um, who has been accused or alleged to be the perpetrator of many human rights violations in the Philippines, then if you support that, then you are... The, the Australian government is seen to be sort of assisting, you know, the military, since, uh, seem to be assisting the Philippine government in continuing this havoc of human rights violations. I, uh, I think the Australian people have the right to question where the Australian money, tax money is being spent and who do we who do we support, you know? Are we going to support the Philippine government when it is uh, doing these horrible things to the Filipino people? So there are already several organizations who have written to the Australian government and um, we are expanding our campaign and actually we are planning to go to Canberra to protest in front of the parliament to ask the Australian government to stop the military aid mm-hmm. to the Philippines. You know, the this uh, Operation Augury, have you heard about that? No. Apparently that Operation Augury is a military partnership including military aid to the Philippines by the Australian government. Um, I think it was uh, late Last year or early this year, there was a news that uh, that the budget for that operation was actually hidden. It is not, uh, you know, it is hidden from the public. So they are very secretive about this. Right. And, yeah, exactly. Like you were saying, though, I would say that not only do Australian citizens have a right to know about where you know, Australian taxpayer money is going, but in fact a responsibility, you know, and when we hear about, for example, what's going on in the Philippines, that we can't just say, oh, that's so terrible over there, but that actually through Australian funding backing the Australian mili- um, the Filipino military, you know, that, that we are also complicit in that and that we have a responsibility to stand up in solidarity um, in terms of what everyone is doing to fight back against um, repression in the Philippines. So it's true. So just to wrap up, May, if people want to people want to join in, people want to find out more, how can we do that? Well, um PASA has a Facebook account, so you can go to, to PASA Facebook account or actually please come to our International Human Rights Day event. It is going to be held on December eighth at Sedon Scout Hall near the Sedon train station, which is uh, about one minute walk from the Sedon train station. So it starts at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We have very good speakers and we have many activities. That is December 8th. So, and uh, you, you will know more about our campaign and how you can support the the campaign against the harassment, against the brutality of the Philippine military to the people. Mm. Brilliant. Okay, so December 8th, weekend after next, um, you said near Seddon Station, yeah? Yes. Uh, the, the address is 1A Bel Airs Avenue, Seddon. Perfect. Um, and if people want to find out more, I imagine they can look up PASA online, Philippines Australia Solidarity Association. Um, Facebook. 
on Facebook. Thank you so much, May, for joining us this morning to let us know about what is going on in terms of solidarity against the military brutality in the Philippines. It's my pleasure, Max. Thank you so much, too. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. It's five past eight. We were just chatting with May Kutsakis, co-chairperson of PASA, Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, about military and government repression in the Philippines and what is being done in terms of solidarity efforts over there and here as well. Get down to the event that they're holding near Seddon Station on the 8th of December. Up next, I'll play another um, track for you. This one is Catch a Vibe by Crown. Military mind. Let's get it. What else? Don't tell me nothing. No discussion. Catch a vibe. Real. Recognize the lies. I see them looking from the sides. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised. Yeah, don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Real, recognize the lies, I see them looking from the side. So don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised. Gotta check every man, go say something. Gotta say once and I'ma get it done. I'm a man of five, don't take those lies. The eyes don't lie, no Chico, no Chico. They use real life, only seven beat with a real life. No king when I come around, military like a gun around. No smiles, I carry frowns. I did my miles, I don't fuck around. No shortcuts, don't cut around here. Indigenous kings, that's all I did. Payback might be the life they claim. Dark Vader up in the night, with a sharp razor for the slice of piece of cake with my shield. The table missing, had no food up in the kitchen. Man of the house, I had to listen. How's eviction? It was listed. Told my mama, we gon' make it. It's a promise, I won't break it. Hunger was feeling kinda spitting. Better time was coming on the mission. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe, real, recognize the lies, I see them looking from the sides, don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe, get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised, yeah, don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe, real, recognize the lies, I see them looking from the sides, don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe, get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised, yeah, king of my city, you know that. I need a mic where the show at. I might blow up and never go back. I might grow up and never grow back. If you owe something, better pay now. I'm a god, better pray now. Don't tell me nothing, cause everybody got a great mouth. Don't tell me nothing, I'm a black and a great white shark. King of the treble and bass, yeah. Got a feet rap like a bass hit. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion and no debate here. Talk proper, do a grown, I'm a might blow up and never go back. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Real, recognize the lies, I see them looking from the sides. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised, yeah. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Real, recognize the lies, I see them looking from the sides. Don't tell me nothing, no discussion, catch a vibe. Get the children trying to survive, poverty stricken and televised, yeah. King of my city, you know that. I need a mic with the show at. I might grow up and never go back. I might blow up and never go back. King of my city, you know that. I need a mic with the show at. I might grow up and never go back. I might blow up and never go back. Real, you know, it's all yeah, yeah. Now. You know, we've yeah, been, yeah. We've been scheming. We've been planning this shit. You know yeah, what I'm yeah. saying? Military. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What up? What up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's, life is good. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast. 8.55am, it's 10 past 8, and that was Catch a Vibe by Crown. Summertime. 
summertime brings wine. Pass me my Prosecco. Out on the patio. This year's delicious Radical Radio wines are generously sponsored by Breast's Winery in the Harcourt Valley. Specially priced at only $20 a bottle and even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. You can order via phone or online and collect it from 3CR during business hours up until noon on Tuesday the 24th of December. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR. Call the station during business hours on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward shop. Breast Wines is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 855am. And up next, we're going to be playing some audio for you from the Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference that took place a few weeks back. We've already played um, some selections from that conference um, on Thursday Breakfast, but now we're going to be playing uh, John Maynard's talk. We'll be playing that in two parts for you this morning. So here's the first part now. Going back to the Palestinian situation, just prior to World War I, Zionist Jewish immigration to Palestine was rising at an extremely high level. By 1910, the Palestinian population were recognising that there was a full-scale movement to establish a Jewish state. Abdullah Mukhlis, writing at the time with incredible foresight, stated, We, the Arabs, fear that the new settler will expel the indigenous people and we will have to leave our country en masse. Now, a feature of this period was the way in which the new Jewish arrivals, unlike their predecessors no longer employed Palestinian labour, using instead exclusively Jewish workers and took on the status of a state within a state. This move was backed by British financial support and championed by British Foreign Secretary Lord Balfour and Baron Rothschild. Arthur Ruppen, speaking at the 1913 Zionist Conference in Vienna, outlined the agenda, and I quote, The creation of a Jewish milieu and of a closed Jewish economy in which producers, consumers and middlemen shall all be Jewish. As Fanon rightly argued, bourgeois nationalism is transformed into forms of racism and separatism. Kali al-Sakakini, an influential Palestinian, wrote in 1914 of the approaching storm. What I despise is this principle which the Zionist movement has set up, which is that it should subjugate another national movement to make itself strong and that it should kill an entire nation so that it might live because this is as if it is trying to steal its independence and to take it by deceit out of the hand of destiny. Only months later, the Palestinian Philistine newspaper recognised the distinction between the old Jewish people and the Zionists. Ten years ago, the Jews were living as Ottoman brothers, loved by all the Ottoman races, living in the same quarters, their children going to the same schools. The Zionists put an end to all that and prevented any intermingling with the indigenous population. They boycotted the Arabic language and the Arab merchants and declared their intention of taking over the country from its inhabitants. Now, at the beginning of World War I, 
Britain had made promises to Sharif Hussein bin Ali of Mecca that if he supported the British war effort against Turkey, Britain would support the establishment of an Arab nation state. In fact, Britain had no intention of supporting such an Arab nation state and had been in secret discussions with France on how they would both carve up the Middle East once the war was over. At the end of the war, France invaded Damascus and Britain had already taken Baghdad, Jerusalem and Cairo. Australia played a part in this duplicity and unjust invasion when a nationalist Arab revolt in Cairo was crushed through the assistance of Australian troops. Now, Britain agreed in 1917 to hand Palestine to the Jews as their national home. The early decades of the 20th century proved a devastating time period for both Aboriginal and Palestinian people. In Australia, it witnessed the rise of the first united all-Aboriginal political organisation, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association, the AAPA, led by my grandfather, Fred Maynard, pictured here with his sister, Emma, at the Rocks in 1927 at the height of his political activity. Now, the AAPA would go on to hold four annual conferences and fight a bitter four-year campaign against the New South Wales Aborigines Protection Board before being hounded out of existence by the police acting for the board. I want to discuss the second conference held by the AAPA in Kempsey in late 1925 in some detail. It is amazing to think that this conference has not been given the historical attention it deserves. The conference held in Kempsey, and I said, late 1925, ran over three days. Both the Maclay Argus and the Maclay Chronicle in Kempsey recorded that over 700 Aboriginal people attended that conference from right across the state, even across the border. All the papers were written and delivered by Aboriginal speakers. The topics, and the papers covered this, the topics of their papers centred on land. They had a national land rights agenda. They were demanding enough land for each and every Aboriginal family in the country. They wanted to stop the board's practice of removing Aboriginal children from their families. They wanted housing, they wanted education, they wanted health, they wanted employment, and they wanted the boards, the state boards, completely scrapped and replaced by an all-Aboriginal board to sit under the Commonwealth Government. Of great cultural significance is the fact that the press noted that several of the papers were delivered in Aboriginal language. Now, this is the time period where anthropologists are just beginning to break through as the, the um, authorities of Aboriginal culture in this country. And they're quite clearly stating that there is no Aboriginal culture, language or culture left in southeastern Australia. It's gone. Yet here we have a conference in 1925 where several papers are delivered by Aboriginal people in language. They're not going to give papers that people can't understand it. <laughs> and that they'd come from all over the state and it demand their rights and their cultural distinction. My grandfather delivered one of the papers at the Kempsey Conference titled, and this was covered in the press, The Other Fellow. Although the original paper in which the address was based sadly does not survive, it takes little imagination to realise who he was referring to. Aboriginal people during this period were the maligned and marginalised other. We were a dying race, we belonged to the Stone Age. 
But here is this paper, well before post-colonialist theory defined the strategic oppression of otherness. Five decades later, Edward Said, in his 1978 book Orientalism, questioned the Western construction of the other in history, literature, art, music and popular culture. Now, the dilemma of Australian consciousness still revolves around the concept of the other and remains deeply entwined within black-white relations of the continent. Whilst Aboriginal people remain historically dispossessed and disadvantaged, the idea in place of the other has shifted dramatically. Despite numerous attempts historically and in the contemporary setting, the European and Jewish quest to belong to Palestine and Australia, in any meaningful sense, remains trapped and tormented by the past. This inability to deal morally and justly with the past sees the invader solidly in a reverse position as the despised outsider and the firmly entrenched other. In that context, Francis de Gruen analysed the eternal struggle that faces white Australia, and I quote, Imagined as the other... The Aborigines seem to be indigenous and yet alien because denied a place in the social order, presented white Australians with the virtual reflection of their own predicament, born locally and possessing the land, but alien because not indigenous like the Aborigine. I will end with a powerful resolution that was delivered by my grandfather at the close of the 1925 conference, and this was sent to all sections of the state government and also to the federal government. And he said, As it is the proud boast of Australia that every person born beneath the Southern Cross is born free, irrespective of origin, race, colour, creed, religion or any other impediment, we, the representatives of the original people in conference assembled, demand that we shall be accorded the same full rights of privileges of citizenship as are enjoyed by all other sections of the community. And as he said, we have overriding rights above all others in our land. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. It's 20 past eight. We've just been playing for you an excerpt from John Maynard's speech at the Black Palestinian Conference, Solidarity Conference, that happened a few weeks back. Up next, we're going to play for you another excerpt from another speech, this time by Sarah Saleh. And also just a heads up that if you want to hear this audio more at length, we'll be playing that over the summer um, when we do some sort of special broadcasting while we all have a much-needed break. But here's Sarah Saleh speaking at the Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference a few weeks ago. Just a short excerpt. This session is titled Identity, Race, and Solidarity. I'd like to paraphrase from a 1993 paper by feminist community worker and my teacher, Dr. Paula Abboud. Racism rests on the categorization of otherness. It is a tool used to control and maintain the social order of inclusion and exclusion. It operates inside and outside the margins. It is embedded. It is a pervasive framework. It is evolving. There is racism by omission, racism by tokenism, by invitation only into the center, racism by an insidious, deliberate invisibility, racism by dehumanization. There is racism by exotification and orientalism, and racism by ignorance and guilt. The list is exhaustive. 
But there is consciousness. There are global connections. There are entire communities doing the work even if we don't see them. How do we keep creating windows and doors for people to join, particularly in the face of exceptionalism and neoliberalism that force us to think outside of the collective? This involves ongoing analysis and organizing and reimagination. It also means that we must honor genealogy, the histories, the essential histories of activism, the history of struggle and of solidarity movements. That is where we find reservoirs of hope, to quote Angela Davis, and dignity and healing, of freedom and self-determination. And we take them and we expand them. We try and we never stop trying. This, friends, is why this conference is an honoring of genealogy and an expansion. It is a victory in and of itself, inshallah. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Professor Alexis Wright with a very special poetry reading for you to kick us off. And so we don't have time to play for you Alexis Wright's speech this morning, um, but as I said, that we will be playing some more extensive audio from the Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference over our summer broadcasting. Just then we heard from Sarah Seller, uh, who we've spoken to on Thursday Breakfast before, and um, prior to that we heard an extract from John Maynard's speech as well. You can also, I think, jump online, um, look up about the conference. It was a really incredible um, couple of days of amazing speakers, um, an incredible sort of, yeah, solidarity in action, I guess. And up now I might play for you a track um, this is a new release from Baker Boy and Jess B called Medigen. Music is the Medigen. These beats got us out of control. Gangs around like you never get old. Breaking and popping on my boys pop like Gotta steal it like me out of this world. Eat the mask, the young one ballet, like a going a lego. Go more in a tumor in a loop on me, use the monthly beat. Could you mark only meeting the price? Go hard, never lay back. No problem, you got two left feet, can't catch that beat, take a deep breath, cause I got this yo. And I'm down to ride. Where the beat drop, there me you'll find. And we still in the city, but the crowd going wild. Ooh. Yeah, 
Keep it banging through the system. Light it up, start it up like an engine. Bars on lock, put the music freedom. And the booty drum go for up a bum bum. Hey, okay, here I come. I give you some, some, some of this, make it jump. Do it just to do it, and I do it till it's done. Connect with the sound, people over income. That's team, that's why I get the picture. That's us, that's mob. If you with us, just be yeah, the queen is in the building. You better come correct if you're knocking at the kingdom. Yeah. here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune into Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Tilda is one of only a handful of trans and gender diverse film festivals in the world and has returned to Footscray Community Arts Centre from Thursday the 28th of November to the following Sunday. Tilda showcases the works of TGD filmmakers and artists and films that have TGD content for TGD people, allies, and the wider community. Check out the full program and get tickets at tildemelbourne.com. That's T-I-L-D-E melbourne.com, a 3CR supporter. This is 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. We've come to the end of the show and what a great show it was with just me here, Max. Um, this morning we talked with Adrian Faruga about the new website, overdoselifesavers.com, which recounts people who use drugs experience with overdose and also um, experiences with take-home naloxone and what we can do in our communities to, to skill up and keep each other safe around um, opioid use. After that, we spoke with May Kutsakis, chairperson of the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, about what we all can do to support solidarity efforts um, against military repression in the Philippines and, you know, Australian complicity in terms of the funding um, for the Filipino military. And then just before, we heard some more excerpts from the Black Palestinian Solidarity Conference and... We heard both John Maynard and Sarah Saleh as well and tune in over summer to hear some more extensive audio um, from that incredible conference. Also, we heard just then um, an announcement about Tilda Film Festival, Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival that's happening this weekend. So if you haven't already, jump online, grab your tickets, hope to see you there. That's all we've got time for. I've got time for on Thursday breakfast this morning. Um, stay tuned for Lost in Science and we'll be back next Thursday. Take care, everyone. Have a great Thursday. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, 
or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.